Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Mom. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Just a quick reminder that our 20% off sale for the MDM celebration, Mothers of Vision, is ending Wednesday at midnight. And that brings the price down to under $40, I'm pretty sure. So pretty cheap for an entire day. You'll be in small mentoring pods of under 20 women in your group, mentored by some stellar women I've been training. You'll go through all, I think, 12 or 13 video trainings and have assignments and be in a small group where you'll be able to ask questions and get mentored. So you will walk away with a pretty stellar action plan. And for that same discount, you can add mentoring on if you'd like. But that sale is going to come to an end. So wanted to make sure you were all aware and could capture that sale at September 26th, the Saturday and we will be going all day so it will be a phenomenal experience to create a vision for yourself and for your family and for your life maybe for your homeschool this year some moms have wanted to do that so grab a hold of that sale today we're going to spend some time talking about benjamin franklin and i've called it a mission-driven story but we're going to do something a little bit different. Normally with a mission-driven story, I give you like the whole thing from start to finish and we talk about how they lived each of the laws. And you're definitely going to see some of that in here. If you've read his autobiography, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today will seem familiar. There are some myths around him, some of which even started during his lifetime. There is a modern day movement to not have any heroes, to not celebrate the good things that good people did with good-hearted intentions, and to not be, you know, trying to follow in the footsteps of someone who made good choices. And anyway, so I want to just spend a little time talking about Benjamin Franklin, who I know is a little bit controversial. And I want to do that because I want to debunk a couple of the myths and I want to talk about <laughs> his younger years today. Most people are pretty aware of his um, discoveries later in life, the lightning rod, he made a stove, his uh, really successful almanac and printing office, and then of course um, as an ambassador to other countries and helping in the uh, Constitutional Convention. So as a representative in government. He also did some amazing things. I talk about him in my book club Bible. That's a book that's um, mostly written but hasn't been released yet. <laughs> I teach people how to have successful book clubs and one of the things that he did was start up a book club called the Junto or the Junto, I'm not sure how you say it, that was the catalyst for lots of self-education that happened in Philadelphia over the years to come. And it also produced the first fire station, the first public library in the United States. It also, some of the founders, some of the members of that book club went on to found 
hospitals and other just incredible public works. So I really admire that about him. Just did some really amazing things, was brilliant and hardworking. There's a lot to admire about Benjamin Franklin. He's a, wor- he's a man whose influence is so vast. He's important to know about. But one of the reasons that I like learning about Benjamin Franklin, which all of you moms listening will appreciate, is that he did some pretty stupid stuff when he was young. It's funny because when I get worried about, you know, one of my kids or nieces or nephews or whoever it is, I'll just think about Benjamin Franklin and I'll think, he was a bit of a mess and he turned out incredible. So I'm not going to worry too much about this current thing that's going on, whatever that might be. Puts a little perspective on the mothering journey and on kind of the experiences and the experiments our kids need to have. I'm going to quote him quite a bit as I go through some of his younger years, quoting him from his autobiography. I just recently reread this to my younger two, and we had quite a, a fun time and some good conversations around some of his good and bad choices. So he starts out by talking about from poverty and obscurity, the, from the poverty and obscurity, obscurity in which I was born and in which I passed my earliest years, I have raised myself to a state of affluence and some degree of celebrity in the world. And that was definitely, even in his day, a bit of an understatement. And, you know, he, he, was, he was a little bit proud, which is understandable, He tried to be understated and humble. It can be hard to be when so many people admire you so much. But I've got to give him credit in the sense that one of the reasons why he wrote his autobiography and and The Way to Wealth is a book that we put in our Principles of Liberty course because one of his central messages is, I want to write this down because I didn't do anything you couldn't do. That's really the point that he wants to make is that, you know, I worked hard. I lived certain key principles. I tried to obey God and his laws and it worked out great. And he really believed that people could have successful lives if they would do the same. And so much of the motivation for telling his story, and he's very open about mistakes that he made. He calls them errata some of my errata in my life that I would like to go back and change. He knows were folly, the folly of youth, and they they were, he shouldn't have done them. And so he didn't want to masquerade as someone that was perfect. He wanted to teach through his experience and he wanted to empower through what he wrote, which I think is really phenomenal. He goes on in this introduction to say, and now I speak of thanking God I desire with all humility to acknowledge that I owe the mentioned happiness of my past life to his divine providence, which led me to the means I used and gave them success. So he really believed that God directed him, led him to the principles and truths that he implemented and helped him become the success that he was. He gave the glory to God, which I really think is so fantastic. So he was a very apt learner. He said, my my early readiness in learning to read, which must have been very early as I do not remember when I could not read. And the opinion of all 
his my friends that I should certainly make a good scholar. So he couldn't even remember when he couldn't read and he loved to learn and that kind of thing. And so he started in school, but then he was pulled out. He took every advantage of reading a lot of his life, which was a huge advantage to him. But his dad decided that he was going to enter his father's business, that of a tallow chandler and soap boiler. So he basically made candles and soap. Benjamin absolutely hated it. And so he, he makes his opinions very loudly known. And his father is like, what in the world am I going to do with this kid? He doesn't want to. He just figured, you know, I'll teach him how to do what I do. And he'll be able to make a decent living and provide for his family. That's not how it worked out. And so they decided on a different plan. He takes a moment to mention a little something about his dad. Because his dad seems like a great guy. He was not perfect. He was not the perfect father, perfect person. But he really took the education of his children seriously. He says, um, I remember well his being frequently visited by leading men who consulted him for his opinion in affairs of the town or of the church he belonged to and who showed a good deal of respect for his judgment and advice. He was also much consulted by private persons about their affairs when any difficulty occurred and frequently chose an arbiter between contending parties. At his table, he liked to have, as often as he could, some sensible friend or neighbor to converse with, and always took care to start some ingenious or useful topic for discourse, which might tend to improve the minds of his children. By this means, he turned our attention to what was good, just, and prudent in the conduct of life. And so he tried to use whatever means he had to teach his children through the discussions that they had at the table. He couldn't always afford to send his kids to school. That was a bit of a luxury at a time when there were a lot of mouths to feed and having a boy, having a son, meant that he could help provide. And so he put him in his trade kind of early, I don't know, eight or nine or ten. And when it was clear it wasn't working out, he was wise enough and kind enough as a father to try a different plan. So he had another son that was older than Benjamin who was um, in the printing trade. He decides to indenture him basically to his other son because he loved reading so much and anytime he got any money he purchased books he says this bookish inclination at length determined my father to make me a printer though he already had one son of that profession and so his brother had gotten all set up he said he resisted it for a while, but he finally was persuaded and signed an indenture when he was about 12 years old. I was to serve as an apprentice until I was 21 years of age. So that is a very long time. Nine years to be an indentured servant, basically, which meant that his brother was, basically his father was turning responsibility for his son over to his older son. And this son was responsible to feed and shelter Benjamin to train him in this trade and then to kind of help him set himself up when he was 21. But he was set to be there for nine years. Some good things came of it. He had access to better books. 
and he met a man who invited him to use his library. So that was a good thing. He loved to write and he wanted to use this opportunity to practice his writing. He said, I was very ambitious of becoming a tolerable writer. The time I allotted for these exercises and for reading was at night after work or before it began in the morning or on Sundays when I contrived to be in the printing house alone, avoiding as much as I could the common attendance on public worship. Now, one of the things I want to say about Benjamin Franklin that comes up often when you talk about him, even among, you know, like Christian people, is that he didn't really go to church. He didn't really live, you know, his religion and that kind of thing. But he's very open and honest about the fact that he struggled with different doctrines of different religious faiths, but he was a very religious man personally. Um, And I'll talk to you in just a little bit about some of the prayers that he wrote and said regularly, how much he gave God credit for the life that he lived. He did go to church sometimes. He definitely contributed to the church. He definitely lived he, he, he believed in Jesus, he believed in the afterlife, he believed in the final judgment, all of those things. Uh, but he struggled sometimes to settle on a specific sect that he wanted to belong to. And he would go and listen to their preaching, and if he struggled with it, and as we'll talk about in a minute, he did have a period of time where he was somewhat irreligious. So this kind of started him on the path of that when he stopped attending church, which was not a wise idea, but it's what he chose to do when he was a young young boy. He ran across a book that talked about a vegetable diet, and he decided to go on it, and he came to the conclusion that it made him feel better and gave him more energy. And so he decided on a plan for himself that he wanted to, he, he had to make some of his own food, and it made it hard for him to do that when he was living with this other family. So he said, I proposed to my brother that if he would give me weekly half of the money he paid for my board, I would board myself. So this is, he's probably 14, 15, 16, something like that at this point. And so his brother is going to save half the money he normally spends to board him. I presently found myself, found that I could save half of what he paid me. And this was an additional fund for my buying of books. So his brother saved half of what he was spending on his room and board, and he went and found his own place to stay, and he made his own food that was very simple. He said it gave him more energy and he felt better, and he was able to save. He said he had, I made greater progress from that greater clearness of head and quicker apprehension, which generally attend temperance and eating and drinking. And so then he goes on to talk about, he read Locke, Um, He read other great authors. He read Socrates. Um, He tempered the way that he talked to people. He wasn't such a heavy debater. He didn't always try to win contests of, of the mind at that point. So then he goes on. He's starting to write his own stuff. And he actually gets like a few poems published, but they're not, they, they sell right at the beginning a little bit, but he, he, you know, he's not really a poet at heart. And so he sees that people contribute to his brother's paper. And so he gets this idea that he's going to contribute to his brother's paper. So he writes something and he slips it under the door at night. He said it was found in the morning and communicated to his brother, communicated it to his writing friends 
When they called in as usual, they read it, commented on it in my hearing, and I had the exquisite pleasure of finding it met with their approbation. So it ended up, he ended up getting a few things printed, and this is later on became the silence do good letters. And he, nobody knew that it was him for quite a while. And it gave him an opportunity to practice his writing and to get real feedback in the real world without people knowing who had written it. So that was really good for his confidence. It was also really great for his writing skills. In the meantime, he's not getting along with his brother super well. He said, our disputes were often brought before our father, and I fancy I was either generally in the right or else a better pleader because the judgment was generally in my favor, but my brother was passionate and had often beaten me, which I took extremely amiss. So this is going on that he's not getting along with his brother. His brother doesn't know that he's getting stuff printed in the paper, and his brother beats him when he gets really mad, um, and he hates it. So in the meantime, his brother prints something that doesn't go over well with the local governmental officials. So they actually arrest him and they tell him that he can't run his paper anymore. So this is an early precursor to why do we have freedom of speech written into our constitution? Because these individuals had real real stories, real experiences with that. So he gets out, they tell him, okay, the, the order of the house is James Franklin should no longer print the paper called the New England Current. So he doesn't want to give up his livelihood. He doesn't want to give up his paper. It already has a reputation. So they contrive this plan, which works out in Ben's favor, but not in James's. So they decide that they're going to print the paper under the name of Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, And the only way that they can do that is if Benjamin Franklin is no longer indentured. So they tear up his indenture papers and then they make him sign new ones. Benjamin Franklin said um, they were to be kept private. A very flimsy scheme it was, but however, it was immediately executed and the paper went on accordingly after under my name for several months. So he says, the next thing I did, I consider a great error of my life, but he was very miserable with his brother. He was about 16 at this point. I mean, you can imagine five more years of this would seem miserable, especially when he's getting beaten. And so he decides to leave. Under the impressions of resentment for the blows his passion too often urged him to bestow on me, though he was otherwise not an ill-tempered man, perhaps I was too saucy and provoking, And when he found out that he was, he says at length, a fresh indifference arising between my brother and me, I took upon me to assert my freedom, presuming he would not venture to produce the new indentures. So he's smart enough to realize that his brother's new business is at stake. And he's not going to, he's not going to show new indentures publicly because then his paper's going to get shut down again. And he might get in worse trouble because he put it under the name of someone that was indentured. So he realizes he has the upper hand. His brother goes around to all the printers in town and tells them that he's awful to work with and they shouldn't hire him. So now he's unhirable in Boston. So he decides, okay, well, I'm going to leave. And it's tough. You know, he walks all the way there. He doesn't have much money. It's a big trial, but he winds up in Philadelphia. He gets in with some printers there. He says that they don't really know what they're doing. 
He said these poor printers were ill-qualified for their business. But he hires on with one of them, and he actually kind of cleans things up and makes the paper better because he's learned his trade. He's really good at what he does at this point. I began now to have some acquaintance among the young people of the town that were lovers of reading with whom I spent my evenings very pleasantly and gained money by my industry and frugality. No one knew where he was except for a childhood friend named Collins who kept it secret and they wrote back and forth and he kept up on his family, but his family didn't know where he was. Um, sadly, he, he didn't tell them. In the meantime, Sir William Keith is the governor of the province. And of course, at these times, the governor was appointed by the King of England. And so he wasn't popularly elected, but he did try to please the people and work together with you know, the representatives, the governor takes a liking to Benjamin Franklin. And he starts meeting with him, having him come over to his house to dinner. And he's impressed with him. He reads some things that he's written, et cetera, et cetera. So now this governor, Keith, says to Franklin, now, why don't you have your own paper? And Franklin's like, I don't know. That's a great idea. I should have my own paper. He says, you know what? This is what we're going to do. I'm going to help you get started up in business. Your dad, I'll, I'll recommend you to your dad. Your dad should really trust you. You should start up your own business. He made arrangements with the guy that he was working with. He said, the governor sent for me now and then to dine with him, which I considered a great honor, more particularly as he conversed with me in the most affable, familiar, and friendly manner imaginable. So then the governor gives him a letter. And he says, take this home to your dad. It's very flattering. It says that he's, you know, just a well-adjusted young man. He's very mature. He should be set up in business. And part of this is motivated by the fact that they don't have a good paper in Philadelphia. Really, the reason the governor is doing this is because if he can take Benjamin Franklin into his good graces and they can become good friends and he can help Benjamin Franklin get started in the printing business, then he can have influence over him. And Benjamin Franklin will write nice things about him and support his measures, and support the things that, that he proposes. And Benjamin Franklin's just too young to see that he's being used in this way. He just knows that he's very flattered and feels important to be invited to the governor. And so the governor writes this really flattering letter. Benjamin Franklin takes it home and surprises his family. Everyone's happy to see him except for his brother, <laughs> not surprisingly. And he gives the letter to his dad and says, hey, the governor thinks this is a great idea. And his dad is, is pleased pleased with his progress, pleased that he's friends with the governor. I mean, all of that is wonderful, but he thinks it over and he goes back to Franklin and he says, nope, I'm not going to do it. You're too young. He says, my father was clear in the impropriety of it and gave a flat denial. Then he wrote a civil letter to Sir William, thanking him for the patronage he had so kindly offered me and declining to assist me as yet in setting up. I being, in his opinion, too young to be trusted with the management of an undertaking so important and for which the preparation required a considerable expenditure. 
Um, telling, he went on to tell his son that by steady industry and a prudent pars- parsimony, I might save enough by the time I was one and twenty to set me up, and that if I came near the matter, he would help me out with the rest. So his father wants to support him and wants to help him succeed, but he believes that if he'll work for another few years and save most of the money himself, that he will have a much greater interest in it, that he will be more mature, and that if he can't come up with all the money, his dad will make up the difference. So, you know, in retrospect, you can see the wisdom his father had because it doesn't go well from this point. So Benjamin Franklin is a conscientious young man. He's a good young man. People are concerned about him because he doesn't go to church. He's really flattered by the attention that he's getting in Philadelphia, and he just thinks that he can go ahead as planned with the governor's help. Now, in the meantime, he starts spending time with his friend Collins, his childhood friend that was in on his secret, who used to be a really great, he says, a sober, industrious lad, and now he had taken up, he he was becoming an alcoholic, drinking brandy, um, he beha- behaved in a very extravagant manner. He was gambling and losing his money. And for the next few years, he hangs out with these guys who are just no good. And he doesn't get into the same amount of trouble as them, but they just drag him down. And he winds up providing for himself and for them, which means that he struggles to kind of make his way and get along. And uh, it just doesn't go well for him. And so on the way back to Philadelphia, actually, he stops by his brother's house. And his brother hands him a good amount of money and says, I want you to invest this for me. I need you to hang on to it. He said, a friend of his, okay, it was a friend of his having some money due to him in Pennsylvania, 35 pounds, desired I would recover it for him and keep it until I had his directions on how to employ it. So he goes to this friend, he gets the money for his brother and he's supposed to hang on to it. But now this other friend that's living with him knows he has this money. And so he's always trying to borrow it and it just becomes this real huge source of, of trouble. Knowing that I had that money of Vernon's, his friend Collins was continually borrowing of me, still promising repayment as soon as he should be in business. His drinking continued, blah, blah, blah. He keeps borrowing from his brother's money. And now Franklin's getting really paranoid that his brother's going to show up and ask for the money and he's not going to have it. So he's just, (laughs) things are just keep getting worse for him. He goes back and the governor, this is what the governor says. Since he will not set you up, I will do it myself. Give me an inventory of the things necessary to be had from England and I will send for them. You shall repay me when you are able. I'm resolved to have a good printer here and I'm sure you must succeed. And then he says, this affair showed that my father was not much out of his judgment when he supposed me too young to engage in business of importance because this governor, he doesn't really check his character. He doesn't really ask any other questions. He just knows he's a man of importance and he's going to set him up. And so he says he's going to write all these letters for him to these businesses in England and they're going to give him the stuff and then when he gets back he's just going to write what the governor I guess tells him to write or whatever I don't know like he hasn't thought that part through and then he's going to pay him back as he can so he thinks this is a great idea 
He says, Had it been known that I depended on the governor, probably some friend that knew him better would have advised me not to rely on him, as I afterwards heard it as his known character to be liberal of promises which he never meant to keep. So he didn't have a lot to offer in the way of things, and so he just made promises that he didn't keep. And he said if he had done any homework at all, he would have found that out, but he didn't. So he gets on this boat and he waits for the letters to come. They're supposed to be sent to him. He waits and waits and waits. They never get to him. And so he gets on board and he asks the captain if the captain has any letters from the governor. And the captain says, they're all in a bag. I can't go through them. We'll look at them when we get to England. And Franklin just trusts that the letters are in there in that bag for all these people in England that are just going to give him this stuff on, on the governor's good credit or good word. <laughs> it's just like he just doesn't have nearly enough life experience to see all the problems in what he's getting into. In the meantime, before he left, he had gotten together with a group of friends who were kind of, uh, Collins was one of them, and then he met a guy named Ralph. He says, and this is, this is unfortunate, he says, the others were rather more lax in their principles of religion, particularly Ralph, who as well as Collins had been unsettled by me, for which they both made me suffer. So because he wasn't acting in a more moral manner, because he wasn't attached to a particular religion that he was striving to live, and he didn't have that moral code to guide him, he influenced these other young men to also not be moral, and he suffered along with them for their bad choices. So Collins had already been borrowing money from him like crazy and doing all kinds of stuff that actually gave Benjamin Franklin a worse reputation. And then Ralph, who was married and had a child, actually followed him to England. So he got on the boat with Franklin and they went there together and he found out later that this friend Ralph didn't like his wife's family. So he was just abandoning her to go to England and he never intended to come home. It's like, these guys, I mean, even by today's standards, they're bad news. They're gambling and drinking and borrowing money and not doing anything useful. And this guy's married with a child and he completely abandons them and it gets worse. So they get to England. Franklin says, when we came to the channel, the captain kept his word with me and gave me an opportunity of examining the bag for the governor's letters. I found none upon which my name was put under my care. So he goes to him um, and starts talking to the captain about it. I was surprised to find that the letters he had found were not the governor's letters. And after recollecting and comparing circumstances, I began to doubt his sincerity. So he had become friends with an older man on the ship whose name was Denham. And he found his friend after he didn't find any letters from the governor to him. And he opened the whole affair to him. And then this man let him in on the governor's character. No one who knew him had the smallest dependence on him. And he laughed at the idea of the governor's giving me a letter of credit, having, as he said, no credit to give. 
So he says, among the printers here, you will improve yourself, and when you return to America, you will set up to greater advantage. So he says, just make the most of the fact that you're in England. Learn from these printers as well, and I guess you'll be a better printer. He later learned that this governor just wanted to please everybody and make everybody like him, and this need to have everybody like him is what led him to behave in this way. So he's in England. He says, Ralph and I were inseparable companions. He now let me know his intentions of remaining in London. And he borrowed occasionally of me to subsist while he was looking out for business. So of course, Benjamin Franklin immediately gets work, but Ralph does not. But Ralph finds a new girlfriend. He says, he seemed quite to have forgotten his wife and child, and I by degrees my engagements with Miss Reed. So he had a girlfriend he'd left behind that he almost was engaged to. He only wrote her one letter. He said, to whom I never wrote more than one letter. He was in England for a year and a half, and he wrote her one letter. That was to let her know I was not likely soon to return. And this was another great error of my life. I wish I could correct if I were to live it over again. And he said he, um, by our expenses, I was constantly kept unable to pay my passage. So he never, for a long time, couldn't save up enough to return to America because he just kept debting uh, and just kept living beyond his means and loaning money to this friend Ralph all the time. And so Ralph gets in with this uh, young woman, a milliner who had a shop she had been genteely bred, was sensible and lively, but she had a daughter, and I don't know what happened to her husband. Ralph read plays to her in the evenings, and they grew intimate. She took another lodging, and he followed in, and they lived together. So here he is, a married man with a child back in America, living with another woman and her child, and never making enough money, so borrowing all the time from Franklin, and this is the guy he's hanging out with all the time. And then he decides, okay, I'm going to go get a better job and then we'll have more money and I can actually take care of this new woman that I want to be with. And when he went to get the job. He didn't want his old reputation to follow him. So he told everyone his name was Benjamin Franklin and then proceeded to kind of soil Franklin's reputation. And then, <laughs> to make matters worse, while Ralph is off, off being a tutor, calling himself Benjamin Franklin. Franklin is back with this girlfriend of his, hanging out with her and kind of getting interested in her. She, in the meantime, has lost all her friends and business because of Ralph and was often in distresses and used to send for Franklin and borrow what he could, what he could spare to her. And <laughs> so Franklin's basically taking care of her of his best friend's girlfriend. And he says, I grew fond of her company and being at this time under no religious restraint. And this is really such a key point here is I, uh, maybe he prayed at this time. Maybe he didn't do anything religious at all. He came to see what a huge error that was and how it was messing up his life, not to have any relationship with God in his life. So he returned to, to those activities later but he, he says, I attempted familiarities with her, which she repulsed with a proper resentment. So he wanted to be like, get into a relationship with her. She gets mad. She writes to Ralph and then Ralph is mad. <laughs> and Ralph, <laughs> Ralph writes back to Franklin and says, hey, because you came on to my girlfriend, 
even though I'm a married man, that gives me the right. I'm writing off all the debt I have to you. I don't owe you any any debt anymore. I don't owe you any money. <laughs> it's like, the whole thing is so dumb. They're like 19 and 20 at this point, off in some foreign country with no oversight and just making all kinds of awful decisions. So now he doesn't have any friends and he's lost a whole bunch of his money. So he kind of tries to pick himself up by the bootstraps and um, he has to pay back Ralph's debts because they're, he's not going to pay him back. And he finally winds up being able to save up the money and he works with Denim. Denim finally comes and makes a proposal to him. Denim still likes him and trusts him and says, why don't you go back with me and be in business with me? And so he had become friends with another guy who said, let's travel all over Europe and just work our way through Europe, which he thought sounded fun. But Denim says, no, 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 don't do that. Come and work with me in my business. Um, I'll teach you how to do sales and it'll be great. And he would help him get set up. And so he, he decides that that's a great idea. He thought he wouldn't be in the printing business at all anymore because he would be in this new print in this new business. And he finally saves enough money, goes back to England, works with Denim, and eventually gets set up in business again. In the meantime, Miss Reed, the kind of the girlfriend he left behind, had despaired of his ever returning because he never wrote to her. And so her friends convinced her to marry someone else. His name was Rogers. He was a potter. And so he got married. She got married to this potter guy while Franklin was in England. But she was never happy. She actually left him. She wouldn't live with him anymore or bear his name. Some people told her that he had another wife. And remember, like, you could go to a new town and make up a new name and try to leave your past behind you. Like, people would try to find you out, but, like, this was a thing that people did. And basically, he ran away. He got into debt. He ran away. He never came back. But there were certain rules about how long they had to be gone, and you had to prove that they were dead, even though they'd abandoned you for a certain number of years. And so one of the myths surrounding... Benjamin Franklin is that he lived with her and he didn't have a legal marriage. They got married and they considered it a marriage, but there were technical issues around it because she had been technically divorced, separated, wanting to divorce for a while, but couldn't actually get a legal divorce. And so they married, they moved in together and legally married and as best they could and started having a family and stayed married the rest of their lives. So it wasn't like he was trying to pull one over on anybody. In terms of the religious aspect of his life, he returned to his beliefs. He said, I was never without some religious principles. I never doubted, for instance, the existence of the deity, that he made the world and governed it by his providence, that the most accessible ser acceptable service to God was by doing good to man that our souls are immortal, that all crime will be punished and virtue rewarded either here or hereafter. These I esteemed the essentials of every religion. He, um, and he grew closer to God over time, reasserted scripture study and prayer, 
Um, I don't know how much in his adult life he attended church. I'm not sure if that was part of what he did, but he supported different churches and encouraged active religion and attended now and again. Another, another thing that people say about Benjamin Franklin was that he was a deist. And he was a deist when he was young for a period of time. And he did write, and just deism just basically means that God created the earth and then he stopped communicating with his children. But he clearly, he denounced that after not too long a time, which he does explain. And then he went on to be um, a more active believer, communicating with God, believing in revelation, believing in the importance of scripture and, and that kind of thing. He's went on about this time when he got kind of back to America, got set up again, and he wanted to achieve moral perfection. He's about 22 at this time. And this is when he got his famous plan together where he wrote down the virtues that the moral virtues that he wanted to develop. And he had a plan to develop them over time. At first he tried to live one a week in that, um, I mean, one a day, and that got too hard. And so then he tried to live one a week, and he went through it four times a year, and he had this uh, chart that he made up. And he even had a schedule that he made for himself where he had what he would do throughout the day. The morning question that he always asked himself every morning was, what good shall I do this day? Rise and wash, address God, contrive the day's business, take the resolution of the day, prosecute the present study, and have breakfast. And then the evening question is, what good have I done today? He talks about a couple of his favorite prayers. This is one, O powerful goodness, bountiful Father, merciful guide, increase in me that wisdom which discovers my truest interest to strengthen my resolve to perform what that wisdom dictates, accept my kind offices to thy other children as the only return in my power for thy continual favors to me. This is one that he took from Thomas's poems, Father of light and life, thou good supreme, O teach me what is good, teach me thyself. Save me from folly, vanity, and vice, from every low pursuit, and fill my soul with knowledge, conscious peace, and virtue pure sacred, substantial, never-fading bliss. So he had these prayers that he said. Uh, it's really cool. And then these are the moral virtues that he attempted to live. And he talked about the, the um, essentials for every religion that every religion ought to believe in. I'll tell you these basics of religion, and then I'll give you his virtues to finish up. There is one God who made all things, that he governs the world by his providence, so that is not a deist belief, that he ought to be worshipped by adoration, prayer, and thanksgiving. The most acceptable service to God is in doing good to man. The soul is immortal, and God will certainly reward virtue and punish vice here or hereafter. So those were some of his basic, fundamental, guiding religious principles that he always adhered to and taught. Here's the moral virtues that he tried to to live by and make part of his character. Temperance, eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Silence, speak not but what may benefit others or yourself, avoid trifling conversation. Three, order, let all your things have their places, let each part of your business have its time. Four, re resolution, 
Resolve to perform what you ought, perform without fail what you resolve. 5. Frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, waste nothing. 6. Industry. Lose no time, be always employed in something useful, cut off all unnecessary actions. 7. Sincerity. Use no hurtful deceit, think innocently and justly, and if you speak, speak accordingly. 8. Justice. Wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty. 9. Moderation. Avoid extremes. Forbear resenting injuries so much as they, as you think they deserve. 10. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanness in body, clothes, or habitation. 11. Tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. 12. Chastity. Rarely use venery but for health or offspring. Never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. And so one of the, another scandal around um, Benjamin Franklin is that he had a lot of illegitimate children, which isn't the case. In his day, he gave away several girls at, well, one in particular, maybe there were others at her wedding in, in the place of her father. So he always called her his daughter. There were other such instances where he kind of, you know, called individuals his daughter or his son in public, and so people took that to mean the wrong thing. There's actually no evidence of that. He's portrayed, even in the most recent John Adams movie, as being very unfaithful to his wife, but chastity was one of his core moral virtues, and so I can't imagine that he was actually unfaithful to her. He not only wants to keep it within the marriage covenant, but he also wants to use it for health or offspring. So um, chastity was definitely a, a key moral value of his. Humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. There's so much more that you could learn about Benjamin Franklin. He's really a fascinating individual, did so many great things in his lifetime. An individual worth learning about, worth thinking about, you can see that loving God became more and more important as he got older, that loving himself with his health practices, with the moral virtues he tried to adopt in tempering his character. He talks once about how he was very opinionated and would always tell people exactly what he thought, and it was difficult to change himself and to gain self-mastery. Self-mastery was a huge goal in his life. He definitely strove to love himself definitely loving truth. He talked often of principles and moral codes and and loving humanity. His education was vast. He understood many different worldviews, world religions. He supported many different sects and was very open-minded and broad-minded in his day for his opinions about supporting religion, even if it wasn't your chosen sect. So a good man, a mission-driven man, a man whose life in many ways is worth emulating, worth learning about. Don't be deceived by what modern thinkers and writers will always say about people in our history because it's intentionally being distorted in order to move us further away from truth. So be careful with that. I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit more about Benjamin Franklin's youth and moms and dads take hope that even when your kid is off in England hanging out with a guy who's abandoned his family, deading like crazy and making moves on his best friend's girlfriend, there is still hope in the end that he can be a great statesman and do wonderful things in the world. 
I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you've not gotten your copy of the audiobook, The Mission Driven Life, head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab your copy. And if you've not joined our Facebook group at The Mission Driven Mom Mastermind, please, we'd love to see you there and get to know you. We'll see you next time.